may not remember this, but when I was about 16, you know, I had this rockabilly band. And we opened for the Blasters. So this is about 1983. We opened for the Blasters at the Keystone Palo Alto. Um, and Dave is the guitar player, right? He was not at the sound check. And I was there, and they said, hey, we need a guitar player to come up and, and, uh, and sound check. And I was like, pooped to my jam. He's like, oh my god, the Blasters. Because that was my thing, you know, like roots music when I was that age, you know. And, um, and I knew all the tunes. So I got up on stage, and I played. And they, they, I remember the guys were like, what the hell is this kid doing? Like, and I was 16. I didn't understand. Like, these are grown men who were like, they don't think it's they're like they're amused but they've been on the road this everything is you know and uh, and I remember you were I think I played and Dave Alvin showed up and he was like wow and he was into he's such a nice guy really nice. cool and then um, but you and Lee Allen were not there and you showed up later I think that's uh, what it was so um, I wasn't an asshole <laughs> no 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 not at all but you know, I remember because I knew Lee Allen from from the Little Richard records. Because my mom had the, would tell me who the people were on those records. You know, it's um, my hero. So w what was it like playing? I mean, you played with him for how long? Two, three years. I, guess. I mean, and that guy is like, it was, you know, like my hero and my roommate. It was kind of weird. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah we, were, we were, you know, we bunked together and stuff like that. It was uh, wow. And you know, he was just. Uh, a gentleman and a entertainer like you know no matter how fucked up or tired or unhappy or whatever else was going on in his life like every night he'd just go out there and fucking bring it like wow it was unbelievable and like I saw him you know like he was literally three sheets to the wind before the show and he'd go out there and just be like he'd be so on point yeah that's what we do it kind was, of thing right? yeah it was like that's yeah. yeah it wasn't often I mean it wasn't like he was a, he was a fuck up but it was uh it was amazing that every single time he played, it was for real. Like, right. It was just like, he never took a moment off, never, you know, no matter what was going on, he was just there. It yeah. Was amazing. Uh, really inspiring. Well, I, was, I mean, I love all that. That's think about it every time I play. Literally, it's not a wow. joke. I mean, every time I play, it's like, you know, what would Lee do? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it's like. That's, that's the shit. Economy and The economy. And that's sound. the sound. Yeah. It's the, well, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'll never be it's the sound I've given up on, but the economy, just like how little can you, I mean, that was the thing to me, it's like, it's just like his, like, in my head, it's like his motor. Yeah. Like the way his motor worked, like the way, like right. his, the way he would hear time. Right. It always seemed to me like it was like, like he, he always played the most interesting subdivisions of whatever was going on. Like he would, like where he put his notes was, it was never like you know the right. track was here. Right, it was right, always right. like some other like it was always three against two or two against like whatever it was. It was right. always like like something almost like Latin music. Where it was always right. like three sure, two. Sure. Yeah, no, because that's the New Orleans thing. That's that whole it's the New Orleans thing, like his, thing. But yeah, but it was even like like his own time. To me, is like it was so unassailably brilliant. Like right. it never, he right. never put a note where you thought it was going to go. It was always right. like a a. 16th note triplet or 32 right 32nd note triplet before or later than where you thought it was going to be yeah, that yeah. to me was like 
you know, so I, I would literally like I'd watch him and I'd be like, dig it, dig it, dig it, In my head, I'd be like, okay, where's that note? Dig it, 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 well, it's just fucking genius. That's yeah, all there is to it. There's no, not, I agree. Nobody's done it better field, before or since. And I can't yeah. do it. I try, yeah. but I can't. Yeah, like, I, I, you know, it's like I'm too busy trying to play to to think about. It. But that's yeah, yeah. To me, like that's what I what sure. I think about. Like, what would Lee do? Like, how would Lee assess this moment? Right, right. Because I oh, saw him do great. it so many times, it was just that's great, mind-boggling, brilliant. So, did you kind of when did you how did you get to L.A. At that time, like in the late seventies, early eighties, when all that stuff was happening, and that, how did you kind of get in that scene? Because I remember seeing Los Lobos before you were in Los Lobos. Wow, really? Yeah, when it was just the four of those guys. Yeah. Again, yeah, when I, I had that too. rockabilly band, and we opened for them. Where? Berkeley, somewhere, Berkeley, California. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I moved to LA in uh, Christmas '75. Uh huh. And uh, I was I. I had come out, there was guys I was, I was in Philadelphia, and the guys that I was playing with in Philadelphia came out like a year before me and ended up backing up Billy Preston and Greg Allman. Oh, wow. And they had, like they were the band of both those guys when they would do right. solo stuff. And they just said, you know, you've got to come out here. It's ridiculous. It's awesome. You know, we just, yeah. we just moved out here and it was, and they were the, the band that they were before they went to, come to LA was the Soul Survivors. Express okay. to your heart, but they oh right. no, the, yeah, the yeah, Soul Survivors yeah. morphed. They got because uh, that was Gamble and Huff, right? Gamble and Huff wrote Express to Your Heart, and they had made a couple of soul like full on Gamble and Huff records, which are really amazing and really hard to find because nobody ever heard them. But it's these two brothers, Charlie Ritt and Richie Ingwe, and okay. the guys that I, the also brothers uh, Stevie and Freddie Beckmeyer, and a drummer named Alvin Taylor, and some other. There's a couple other guys. They all moved to California right. from Philadelphia and got these gigs, and they said, you know, you got to come out here. It's amazingly happening. So I move out, and within 10 days, they lost both gigs. <laughs> wow. Oh, my <laughs> Greg God. Greg went into rehab, and Billy fired him. So I was like, okay, well, I guess... Uh, there you were. So we put a band together. So we were a band, and this was 76, 77. So this is like pre-rockabilly, pre-punk rock. It was right. still like it was like the Boskags, sure, Silk Degrees era. It was sort of right. like white soul, more. Willie Deville, maybe a little bit of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. But you know, in L.A., um, well, he was in New York. Yeah, he New was York. New York. So it was like so we had this band that was sort of like that. It was like white soul. Right. We got signed to Casablanca. So I was. <laughs> I what see, was the band? Uh, the Beckmeyer Brothers. Okay. Again, lost. Not a good in, name. Uh, not a good name. To go name. with at that time. It was a really good band, though. I mean, they were, like, the, the good songs were really good, but uh, we were on Casablanca, so it was just, like, you know, basically a right. front for a coke dealing operation. Is that <laughs> what that was? I heard about Casablanca. that, man. It was just, like, it was, like, everybody that had anything to do with the label was coke dealers, basically. Oh it was just, God. like, from oh the top God. to the bottom, it was just, like, this, basically, like, a what I imagine a... a, a Mexican cartel would oh be like. Oh my god. Because that was like, Casablanca was like, at least when I was a kid, I bought some of those records. I think Donna there was Summer. A, it was just Donna like Summer. The, yeah, the, maybe. You know, the village people. It village was just people, like, stuff like that. It was right, all disco right. and then they signed us for whatever reason. Um, so we made this record. 
um, which exists. People bring it to our shows, and I just right. want to run screaming. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I was in LA, and I was doing this. We had like a a standing gig at um, this place on uh, Franklin and Bronson. I think. Uh, it was right across with the, the what was the, at that time the growing Scientology center. So there was like okay. Scientology waitresses, like all these girls who were the Scientology. These beautiful girls come to get, like want to be actresses, and they were waitresses oh at this God. bar. And you know we were just it's play better to get the money first and then become a Scientologist. But it was don't go you know, don't was, start at the bottom. It was like you know fishing in a barrel for you know single guy from Philadelphia. So right. It was, uh, it was very fun. But we had this gig and we got signed out of that gig effectively. But I was there so. And then, like, I was aware of this scene developing. Right. You know, it's slightly, you know, like, near us, but, like, not where we were. So I started playing with a bunch of these people, and then, um, it's crazy, but this guy named Beachy, Beachy and the Beach Nuts, <laughs> this Korean dude, um, just this insane self-promoter, he was just literally out of his mind. He would never take no for an answer. He would talk himself into gigs <laughs> all over L.A., and he had really good players. It was all covers with this, right. with this literally, it was sort of like uh, Ken Jong, you know, like that. He was like that kind of oh, character. He, like was he, like was, he was like Kim Jong Hill? No, 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 no. Ken Jong, you know, the guy from The Hangover? Like, you know, like the, oh, the yeah, crazy, yeah, 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 like just yeah, like yeah, yeah. no shame. Exactly. Like literally, exactly. he will do yeah, anything yeah. for a laugh. Yeah. That was Beachy. Like wow. the same kind of character. And so he, he would like scream these R&B songs. <laughs> Couldn't sing to save his <laughs> life. But the band was actually pretty good. And I ended up, you know, like meeting all these guys who would then I would, right. you know, end up playing with down the line. And then from there, I was uh, I, I joined this guy Top Jimmy. I don't know if you were of you know course that? Top Jimmy yeah, and Top the Rhythm Jimmy. Pigs. Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs. I and saw them. I think I opened for them in that little sad band I had in high school, and the Beat Farmers as well. The Beat Farmers, who I ended up producing. Right. Yeah, you produced that. I produced record. the first two records. Whoa! Right? I love yeah. that record, man. Well, Tales of the newest. Happy boy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Happy boy, man. Hubba 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 <laughs> hubba hubba. Happy yeah. Boy. <laughs> oh man, I remember yeah, I that. It. So, uh, so I'm sorry, I interrupted. But what? Uh, no, that's well. That's you know. I, I mean, I was just sort of like a slightly. I mean, I was, I was a competent sax player in a moment where like all these bands were forming. Right. So I ended up being. I mean, it, w it was not at all unusual. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but it was not at all unusual. Any given night of the week, I would have like four gigs. Wow. I'd play with like three or four different wow. bands, just driving across right. town, or like right. two would be on one bill, yeah. and, and I would just yeah. literally play every night. Well, and it was, was like every night of the week there was there was music, and so you were playing. What the gigs ran the gamut from from everything to from what? like full on insane experimental electronic bullshit right. to R and B to rockabilly to right. you know rock and roll. It was just like wow. in, in, every everybody was experimenting with the fervor of like uh, uh, you know just uh, like blacksmiths. They were just like right. trying to hammer something new out like right. all the time, like right. all day long. Everybody was just like. You know, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. It was a really, I could only the only thing I could I could like kind of parallel to would be what I read about like Paris in the twenties or got you, got or like you. The, yeah, yeah. You know, like some like everybody's forging. You know, most people yeah. had new identities. They were every, nobody had the real name. Right. Nobody. It was like everybody was working on a new idea. Right. Of themselves and their music and their place in this in this. This right. swirling right. primordial ooze of music. I mean, you were there, so you kind of remember what a it was like. A little bit. I mean, I was a kid, so but I do remember. I was a kid. Too. I was nineteen. I mean, okay. I wasn't much okay. older than you. Yeah. I mean, I was. Yeah. You know, I was just there in the middle of it. But 
it was an amazingly exciting time to be because there was no money to speak of. Right. You know, and we didn't need it. I mean, you know, my rent was $140 a wow. month. Wow. So Where'd you live? In Venice. $140 a month. Yeah, I lived man. in a converted garage, one bedroom. Wow. You know, basically had like a little kitchen and one yeah. bed, like one room. But man, when you're a young musician, that's the life, man. But I live in the like, garage behind my friend's house. There's no bathroom. I mean, I was a happy guy. I could practice six yeah. hours a day I, and exactly eat three meals a day and come up with $100 a month. Exactly and I was good, what it was, man. And that's what I think is lost now is that you, like, how to. They can't you know, do like this. This is a refrain I have every. This is a conversation I have with every single musician. It, it's like. And it's a big reason why Adam Dorn and I decided to start doing this kind of thing, talking to people, because it's something that is like economically, in the same way that you're talking about, you have an economic situation that leads to all this great music. Mm -hmm. You can also have an economic situation that squelches and destroys it. And the thing that's really messed up is that people who are our kids' age are being held up to the standard uh, uh, that, that we were held mm -hmm. to in an entirely different paradigm. Mm -hmm. And it's so unfair, I feel bad for these kids. It's just like, man, don't follow that because there's none of the, none of the opportunities await you that awaited right. us. I mean, it's not like we didn't have to work our asses off because no, we worked we our Clearly. asses off. And we didn't have an iPhone. We couldn't just go on YouTube and, and look mm -hmm. at 10 guys showing us how to play a specific nope. thing. We really had to travel far and wide. But I think that that's the reason why someone like you could play the way you do because you had to travel and you had to find someone like Lee Allen to show you yeah. how to do that. You had to bring a saxophone in situations where a saxophone was not always the most welcome instrument. But yeah, you know? that's very true. Yeah, it was often I had to figure out like how to fit the horn or something else. Like I, I right. quickly learned how to play other stuff just because, right. you know, many times the, the sax wasn't the right instrument. Right. But at the same time, though, I was developing. You know, I was living, and surviving and earning a living yeah on my own and yeah. that's where like you know like my cord was cut when I was 19 and it's like that's what I fear for our kids is like right I don't I have no idea how my daughter's gonna you know I have no idea how long that cord's gonna go on just because there's no you yeah. know where the fuck is she gonna live for you know exactly. x dollars a month exactly and make what she you know yeah. what she needs to make yeah. to do that yeah. that to me is yeah that's one of the the byproducts of right. this age that we live in that it's it's really hard to Imagine how you how you do that. Yeah, now. and I'm no, sure, like, if we, if we were talking to our counterparts in the 20s, they would say the same thing. Like, exactly. You know, when I lived in the Bastille and you know, exactly, or whatever, you know, exactly. Twenty dollars. You know, oh like, yeah, yeah, totally. Just, the paradigm totally. never really goes away, but I, I I fear that, you know, like living in Los like the idea of living in Los Angeles and making music seven nights a week, and and you know, basically, oh, yeah. I was living on two hundred bucks a month. Or, yeah. You know, like uh, that's what I need sure. to make to to, sure. to pay my rent and feed myself. I had to make two hundred right. bucks a month. Not that hard to do. No, no. These I mean, you probably like two thousand. Yeah. Oh, it's insane. Or more. But yeah. I think that that paradigm is shifting away from the big cities because the big yes. cities have become yes, like Brazilian big cities used to be. Because the Brazilian big cities now are having middle class starting to grow in them. Mm -hmm. But you know, the big cities in America are becoming the same thing. Where you see there are no families living there because mm -hmm. they can't That's afford true. it, right. and it's becoming essentially these wealth centers that really don't produce anything except people who move money around from one pile to another right. and their lawyers and all of their attendant service yeah. industry right. people that live in in the surrounding regions very, you know insightful, yeah, so yeah. you know what I find in my travels and I mean I play a lot of very small places in very small towns is that there's always people in those towns that are I find really interesting mm -hmm. that have something to say and they might not be technically 
as proficient as somebody from New York or LA, but the story that they have to tell mm. is much more authentic mm -hmm. and much less um, watered down by the fact that they don't have to work a 60 hour mm -hmm. a week job and then try to get good at whatever art right. they're trying to get good at. They can just, they can just be, you know. amazingly insightful and I um, agree. I mean, I, I meet those people yeah. as well. I, I guess my paradigm, I'm gonna have to shift my paradigm. No, no, but you know what I mean. It's I know exactly like, what you mean. It's, yeah, no, it's there's that some really hip shit know? going on. Yeah, yeah. You know, we played in Des Moines, Iowa the other day. I was like, it's a really fucking hip town. It, was it is, man. Kind of stunned. Like, it is. And probably for that reason. It's like, you know, people who couldn't, you know, it go to Chicago yeah. or, or St. Louis, like, yeah. let's go here. And a lot of people go to New York or they go and they just decide after a few years, you know what? There's no gigs here. Mm -hmm. There's not, I'm not going to get that gig. Well, people ask you me, know? You know, like bands ask me, oh, you know, we're, you know, we want to do this and we're going to move to wherever. And like, I just say, T please don't. You know? Yeah, yeah. Stay where you are, man. Get good yeah, where you yeah. are. Because, yeah, you, know, yeah. so, you know, wherever you are is going to be a much more supportive. You don't need to enter this shark tank. Right. Because I don't right. think the shark tank paradigm, such as it is, is yeah. that effective anymore. Like once upon a time, I it think was. Shark Tank was was you know like yeah. New York and the whenever and L A and the whatever yeah. like there was a there was a yeah. there was a uh, meritocracy right that would elevate or a scaretocracy yeah scaretocracy <laughs> or yeah you get scared into yeah, being yeah. good and I don't think and it, this would probably be like a whole another conversation I'm not sure if that that paradigm really exists anymore I don't think that like the the cream is rising to the top because the the economics of the living situation yeah. distort yeah. all that stuff so yeah. much. Plus the fact you know you got to pay to play the clubs and oh, yeah. and oh, the, the clubs are, are harder to, to get to yeah. and uh, you got to get you know like endless. I mean for me to get to a gig in New York City from Jersey from where I live by the time I get I get to the gig I'm already out thirty dollars mm. oh. just from tolls and gas yeah. and then if I don't find a place to park you know all that and then you play these gigs and it's just like it's crazy you know you basically you're competing with these kids who. Maybe some of them are independently wealthy or they have something going on, but I feel my attitude is most of them went to music school. Mm -hmm. uh, they're insanely great players. They don't have much of a story to tell generally because right. they're not at that development yet. They don't really know how to play for an audience so well, right. but they're insanely developed in terms of their just sheer skill in music and on the instrument. And these guys will play a club where you know people are kicking them in the nuts the whole time they're playing and <laughs> taking $50 bills out of their back pocket try competing with that you know if you're someone from our age group cry competing with that it's just like okay i think the i think uh, the horse is out of the gate yeah, now dude, you know go go to wherever you are you know Asheville, yeah Kansas exactly City, you know. hey man and those places are you know, great places man i you know it's, you know uh, again i i don't know my art history well enough but i'm sure like there's a very similar paradigm occurred absolutely you know, every absolutely. hundred years where yeah. it's like the yeah. cities became useless and the Exactly. All the bullshit. Like I'm sure Florence was like Pascagoula at one Ex point. <laughs> Pascagoula. <laughs> All of the Pascagoula people don't take too much offense. But tell me though something about like LA like at that time with like playing how did you get hooked up with the blasters and that thing? And like what was that vibe so, like in that scene? I mean the, where did that come out of? The I mean, so the the right, so I, I entered sort of sideways, like in right. late seventies. And I was playing with Top Jimmy, who uh -huh. the Blasters, and Los Lobos. Top Jimmy, the Top Jimmy gig was like, um, like being the uh, Ted Jones, Mel Lewis band. Every Monday night, right. everybody, you know, like nobody was working Monday night. Everybody would come to see Top Jimmy, and it was like 
best like it wasn't unusual to see like Eddie Van Halen or uh-huh. you know whoever it was come and sit in with Top Jimmy and everybody it was just a place to be on a Monday night. Right. So I was where was that? Yeah, Cafe de Grand, it's okay. the shittiest little shithole right on the corner of uh, Selma and Ivar in okay. uh, in Hollywood. Um, but it was. Uh, you know the sewage would routinely overflow the bathrooms uh, like you know it was oh, just like so gross power would go out oh gross it would just be like a but it was perfect it was like yeah, the cavern yeah. club basically sure, you know, sure, like, exactly. you know, like we just exactly. got got badass yeah. And, yeah. and the band was really good you know Jimmy yeah. was an amazing singer the guitar player was this fucking lunatic named Carlos Guitarless who oh I know that guy yeah I mean he's a brilliant guitar player but he was the most bipolar human being. Yeah, no, I've anything. seen. I saw him on the street once, and he got into a big conversation uh, with me. No, um, he, he tried to. He literally tried to kill me a number of times. Wow, wow. He didn't he, try to kill me that time. I he, think I for whatever reason he thought time. that I was somebody that needed to be dead. So he, wow. At one point, he chased like we were playing at the Roxy. I think I've been opening for the Blasters, but he decided in the dressing room that I needed to die, and he literally threw a packed Roxy. You know, the Roxy was like. He picked up, he was large and strong, he picked yeah. up the coffee table from the dressing room and he's literally cha- like the coffee table over his head like a big club, chasing me through a packed Roxy before oh we play God. with the coffee table, a coffee oh fucking table God. over his head going, I'm going to fucking kill you. Oh my <laughs> God. out into the parking lot. I have no oh idea. Right, and then we ended nice. up playing that show. I mean, somehow or another, like, he calmed down, but... It was just like, I, to me, just like this image of him, you know how you come down the stairs yeah, and you go yeah. through the, the thing and then you're like in the crowd. He was literally chasing me wow. through a packed Roxy with a wow. coffee table over his head like it was weighed nothing. Wow. Waiting oh, that's to nasty. kill me. But uh, all right, back to your, yeah. to your answer. Sorry. So I think arguably the Top Jimmy gig was the one that put me in a visible place. Uh-huh. So I was seen by... You know the blasters and people like the blasters, right? Um, and so I was working at a music store called Bettman's on uh-huh. Larchmont Avenue in Hollywood. So I was in charge of the sax room. Oh, you know. okay. And Bettman's was this amazing place. It was literally a mom and pop store. It was Saul and, and uh, I forget his wife's name, uh, and and their bastard son. Um, <laughs> who was selling shit out the back door when the, the mom and dad would go home? Like literally, he he bankrupted them. Wow. He was like, you know, and everybody knew like he had a problem, and he was selling. Yeah, he was selling stuff. like you know the, the mom and dad would go home, and he would like you know like deplete the the inventory. Oh my god. Selling shit, you know, pennies on the dollar at the back oh door. Oh my god. But it was a gig, and I needed a gig, so I was uh, I sat, you know, I was working this music store, and I was in there one day, and I didn't work there very long phone rang it was Dave Alvin like hey we're doing this track tonight do you play baritone I said of course I play baritone never played baritone yeah yeah he goes alright well you know come down to uh, Hollywood Sound at 8 o'clock you know we're doing something but I'm shaking yeah 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 like, oh yeah I'm shaking a little, little, oh, little yeah. job so when he asked me I was in the sex room and uh-huh. with a phone rang and I went like yeah baritone right there and that's the horn that I still play. It was the wow. only horn with the mouthpiece. The, like everything was in the case. It was like meant to be. Wow. Uh, so, you know, I went to the session. It went great. And then, like more or less, like after that, I was in the blasters. Wow. From that one night. From that. Wow, one, that's one, incredible. One deal. And I never, quite literally, never played baritone in my life before that phone call. Wow. 
It's wow. kind of crazy. But that's how it, that's how it happened. Yeah, so, you know. it's, it was like I had no time to practice, no time to worry about. It. I just yeah, but that's know, I mean the, that's the, the shift th- ended at, at six and at eight o'clock was in the studio playing exactly. Baritone but I mean stuff. that's the beautiful thing about the the whole music hustles. It's sometimes you you really don't have a choice, and it's the best mm-hmm. stuff. And, yeah. and because it just you just whisked away by it. Preparation met opportunity. You know it's exactly. Like, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, Luck. Preparation plus yeah, opportunity. You know, right. Yeah. It's like you know the, the best advice I ever heard was you know the harder I work, the luckier I get. It's you know it's right. really true. It's, yeah. Yeah. No, that's. You know, that is the truth. Practicing. I mean, I didn't know, you know, I just knew I wanted to play. I just didn't know what it sure. was going to be. Sure. And then, uh, so that, so I was in the Blasters for a couple of years. And then uh, um, one momentous night, uh, Dave Alvin says, hey, you know, we're playing the whiskey whenever. And you know, I got this really cool band, Los Lobos, to open. I was like, Los Lobos? I think I saw them. And I had gone to see a Public Image uh-huh. at the Olympic Auditorium, which is like, if you've been to the Olympic no. Tournament, it was a, it was a boxing. Arena. I used to go there. I was a fan of boxing. I oh, used wow. to go and see fights there, and it was like, it was like the most brutal. It was as close to what I imagine a Roman Coliseum was like. The, the wow. pitch of the floor was like, Ooh. like that, like a forty-five Man. degree pitch. Wow, and uh, the seats were were detachable, so if the Mexican fighter would lose, for instance. The seats would come off and they'd be thrown. And wow! And it wasn't unusual, like people to like you know, like have like piss and right, like you know, things just right. flying through the air. But it was, I mean, I that's the real full deal. Man. I kind of liked it. it was yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. It was real, and I yeah, I would enjoy going down there. So the so the you know, the Sex Pistols had totally missed L.A. You know, in their history. Oh, I didn't. So know So like that. you know, a year or two later, Public Image comes to town, and so so this would be what. 79, 80, I don't know. Right. So like, like sort of like whatever that moment was in music, punk yeah. rock slash history. Yeah, sure. And I saw this band, you know, which was Los Lobos opening for Public Image, but, you know, the, the story that I heard was, because I ended up playing with the other band on that bill, which is the band called The Plugs. Oh, yeah. That uh, Johnny Lydon said, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have, let's have all Mexican bands on the bill. So they asked Tito Lariva, who was in this band, The Plugs, like, you know, get us, we want you know us and like Mexican bands so that he hired Los Lobos and they came out and they, they did you know like folkloric stuff and right. the audience just went absolutely batshit it was like literally like the, the like the scene in you know 2001 where the apes are going crazy oh, <laughs> it was like really? they went out there playing like this oh this my beautiful God. Mexican folk music and these punk rockers are like they're like loaded for fucking bear and they're like ding, ding, and they're hearing yeah, they're yeah. hearing Mexican folk music and they literally threw it Everything they can oh get their hands on. Oh my god! I just remember like watching them. Like, these are the bravest motherfuckers I've yeah. ever seen in my life. Yeah. I mean, they're just yeah. taking this full-on assault. There's nobody in this place who wants to hear any yeah. of their music. Yeah. And people are like literally throwing everything they can get their hands on. Wow! And they stood up there for like 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and they wow. just they gave up after a while. After a while. All right. Yeah, so this is like so, so fast forward like two years later, they're now a rock band. Yeah. And they opened for the Blasters, and it was literally like overnight success like the yeah. next day like it was a Friday Saturday night I mean I was very plugged into the scene at that time yeah they played it was unbelievable they just blew everybody away because frankly at that moment in time the bands that were technically proficient right. were relatively few and far between it was the Plugs X Wall of Voodoo uh-huh. uh, the Blasters were technically right. really right. good musicians like there was a lot of guys who had great ideas really great ideas and that I'm not right. disparaging anybody because some right, of the stuff right. was just the ideas were brilliant but there weren't bands with great technically 
adept. Yeah, people couldn't Like a great execute. singer or a great guitar right, player, right, right. A great drummer, a great bass player. And here's this band that nobody had ever heard of, out of fucking nowhere, even though they've yeah. been playing together for like eight, seven yeah. years at that point, with two unbelievably great singers right. and two great guitar players. Right. And they played, you know, they played technically as well as anybody on the scene. Yeah, and that yeah. was a very unusual occurrence. Yeah. Well, like, I got to tell you, I remember because I, I, I mean, I have to toot my own horn. I was a pretty good musician at that. I was about 16 or 17 because I have been, um, no my mom had, you know, that was her. I was playing the music, uh, you know, all that roots music and all mm. that stuff. You know, I heard the blasts. I heard all these guys open for it. But when I saw Los Lobos, I was like, these guys are way better than the rest of the bands I heard. And there's right. no okay. doubt about it. And I remember thinking to myself, this raises the bar of the more of the roots stuff mm -hmm. that I heard up to that point and I had know? the same exact feel right so every and, and it wasn't just me like all of my hipstery friends were like what the fuck it was yeah, just sort yeah. of like you know somebody brought fire into the cave you know right I mean? right right, like, right yeah and literally the next day this is Friday by Saturday afternoon it was like like every right. conversation I had was like, yeah like, yeah yeah like, and you know we we, you know, I, I, you know, like everybody else, I was just blown away, and we were talking, and um, the next night, you know, we they played again. It was amazing. Right. We, you know, talked again, and then it's a really funny story. So the next night uh, was a Sunday night, and Ornette Coleman was playing at the Westwood Playhouse. Okay. In uh, Westwood, which yeah, yeah, yeah. is Westwood, and I was huge Ornette Coleman fan, and I go to the Westwood Playhouse. They're so slow. I was like, huh. Right, right. <laughs> well, so and wait, they, they had were, the same thought, like, oh. Oh, wait, okay. so you guys, we were all ended up at the same. We just had to be, show. yeah, the Ornette show was like, these guys are into Ornette Coleman. That's fantastic. Like, and they were like, that guy's, I mean, like, so well, of course like, they are. I mean, I mean it's like, the blues. You know, Dave man, Alvin, but, you, know? you know, like, there weren't any other blasters there, but yeah. I sure as fuck wasn't going to miss that yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they felt the same way. So we sort wow. of like, like, very sort of like, you know, circling each other like Bond, and they said, right. you know, they, you know, we were like talking, and they said, well, you know, there's, the saxophone tradition in this music like and I had literally like I came like straight from Philadelphia yeah yeah I had zero you're, exposure you're to Latin you're straight music. up gambling huff I was, and all well, that like I had actually I mean I was the young kid in the room like a lot of my friends actually played on those records right. so I was actually like literally a fly on the wall right some of those recording sessions because I was right. always fascinated by recording sure so like I had like the guys that I wasn't playing with them but they were like my friends yeah were like, 10 or 15 years older than me so they would like let me come to the sessions. I remember like sitting like in Earl Young's drum room and oh, like wow. like watching him play and I was wow. like literally like trying to be as invisible as I could That's possibly be. That's incredible, man. Uh, but I you know don't, I never don't I can't wow. say I saw much. I was I was in Sigma Sound the day that uh, David Bowie called them to do Young Americans, but I wasn't wow, there. Wow, got you. I didn't see anything. I just like, hey, yeah. David Bowie's coming. It was like a big deal. Like, David Bowie's coming. Like, you must you, have been at an OJ's session or two. I, no, I mean, I wasn't yeah. there. I, I, I can't say I was. I, I saw anything that turned into anything that was right, like it. Right, right. But, but you know, you like the there. way that they would do stuff, a lot yeah. of times they would just have Earl Young and, and the MFSB guys just group. Right. They would just group. They would just right. say, oh, you know, like, group for a while. Yeah. And they would literally, like, just... Get an eight section. That's how they would write. That's for the love of money. That's what they. That's what that's, I heard about that. That's exactly yeah. right. Anthony Jackson. They would just say, you know, just yeah. play on A for a while, and exactly. they would just like do it like hey, faster, slower, like do this exactly. Do and so I saw some of that not wow. a lot, but anyway. So yes, I knew 
a little bit right about that. So, but your boom blasted right into this Mexican kind so, of. So, like, yeah, I was like, Norteño oh, okay. kind and, of thing. But, right? you know, Philadelphia at that point, when I was growing up, like, the whole thing was like you had to be ready like no matter what it was gotcha, whatever the gotcha, gig was yeah yeah like the guys that I, I was always the youngest in every band i was in but the, the key was right. be ready whatever it yeah, is yeah. like don't you know if you can't yeah. read learn how to read if you can't do this learn how to do this right just whatever happens right. you got to be right. ready to do it exactly so it was just like my training was oh of course just give music i'm down Let's of course do i know just this. like yeah, you know, yeah. flash just call like oh yeah yeah sure. yeah Baritone, of course. <laughs> Played my whole life. That's the only answer. So I was like instant immersion into what, you know, it's a relatively, it wasn't like this rich R&B tradition. Right. The sax in Mexican music, especially in Norteño music, which is what Los Lobos played, was just a section. It was gotcha. like a lot of times it was gotcha. clarinet or alto sax playing in, in right. either in, in unison or thirds to the right. accordion. Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no such thing as a, as a there's no like a jumbo, you know, like the guy right, who played right. on the, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the, the Fania All Stars, the, the great saxophone player. Right, right, right. There's no, no, there's no, no, no Matt that's, Miracle, there's no soloist, there's no, 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 no. there's nobody who I could, like, oh yeah, I, you know, I really studied this dude. Yeah. They're all completely yeah. honest because it was all literally just playing the parts. Yeah, I know. I've got my Flacco Jimenez record. So I know, I, just, I know the alto I, guy. I, I, so I learned the parts. And wow. I would go out and play with him. Then obviously it wasn't all, you know, Nortenia music. It was like a lot of R&B and soul right. stuff. And that's sure. where I sort of invented where the sax, you know, to this day, where, you know, the sax fits into the band. Yeah, yeah. But it was sort of like this, uh, you know, love marriage. You know, like we right, just like right. kind of fell in love with each other. Like the sax fit what they were doing. And yeah. then like I was inventing shit that fit the other stuff that they were exactly. doing. Exactly. And I was, I mean, I, I wasn't, I mean, I wanted to produce records at, at that point, but it wasn't like I was cultivating them to produce it just of sort course. of like it happened like I got to of produce course. the first thing I did was uh, this thing called uh, it was for this guy named Art Fine who was sort of a, a raconteur guy he was doing these rockabilly a series of rockabilly records so they did a, a track on this rockabilly record uh, called We're Gonna Rock and that was the first thing I did with them okay and that went well and then uh, so I was like at that point I was like playing with them more and more and like trying to like I wasn't like Thinking, oh, I'm gonna leave the Blasters and join this this band because the sure. Blasters were like totally happening, and you know, like, yeah, they were, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, touring the world, you know, like going to Europe and all this stuff. And, yeah, you know, here's this, you know, this little Mexican band. Of course. But I was enjoying playing with them so much, and I would do any. I was like literally like flying myself home from you know wherever I was to play a wedding with them right. for no no dough, sure. just because I wanted to be there. I didn't yeah. want to miss the gig. So this went on for. Probably like a year and a half, where I was just like wherever and whenever I yeah. could, I was going back to play with them, and I was integrating myself more and more into what they were doing. And then they got uh, so uh, Slash Records was just starting at that point, right? And the story that I tell, which I think is true, was that Bob Biggs, the president of Slash, um, didn't really care about signing Los Lobos, but his friends said that they would never invite him to another party if he didn't. Wow, <laughs> so wow. he was literally, I know he signed Green on Red and Los Lobos on the same day, more or, uh -huh. less, or the same moment. And I remember, because I used to, like, I was hanging out at Slash Records just because right. I wanted to be there. I mean, I just, yeah. I was hoping to produce stuff. So I would just, like, right. go to that office, because uh, the blasters were on Slash. Yeah, so I, I was just literally, like, I records. would just, like, go down there and just, like, hang out. So I was there, like, the day that the uh, the, the Violent Femmes uh, demo came in. I remember putting that on wow. the first time. Uh, I heard uh, Blister in the Sun. I was yeah, there, yeah, like in the yeah. room, the first time that anybody ever heard Blister in the Sun wow. outside of the Violent Femmes. Like, 
oh fuck that's really good yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, um, so uh, but Bob Biggs you know the president of the label basically was effectively forced to sign Los Lopez and I remember right. him like the vibe in the, in the office was like well it's not going to go anywhere yeah green exactly. on red man those guys are yeah, going exactly. to be huge yeah uh, oh boy know. those guys really always know best man yes Indeed. They so, know science. It's so a science. I got I, I hoodwinked them into letting me. Initially, it was just me producing it. Then they brought in this guy who had only done a couple records, T. Bum Burnett at that point. Oh wow! Okay. So he and I did. You know, like he was sort of like you know older and you know had done I don't know what like maybe three more records. Like right. I had I had done like almost no records. I had done like yeah. two records at that point or three. But I'd done this this rockabilly thing, which worked out well, and the band liked me. And obviously, yeah. I was yeah. at that point I wasn't in Los Lobos, but they trusted me, and they yeah. didn't really trust T Bone at all. So I was like, sort of like, you know, all right, let's do it together. So we did this. Yeah. We started the record, he and I producing it together, and then like by the end, by the time the record was done, I was in the band. Right. And it was oh, literally awesome. like one day the blasters were going north and Lobos were going south, and I was like, you went with them. I'm going this way. And but it worked out. But it was it was like. Nobody gave a shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Neither yeah. band was like, it wasn't a big deal to Los Lobos. It wasn't a big deal to the Blasters. It was like they were sort of transitioning away from the horn thing anyway. Right. And Dave right. was frankly transitioning out himself out of the band. So it, was, right. it wasn't. It wasn't like yeah, uh, you know, like Sid Barrett yeah. know, leaving Pink Floyd. Or, but then I think something that probably really changed everything for you. And I remember because I was a street musician in Europe. I remember when I heard it. In about 1987 was La Bamba, the oh, yeah. Los Lobos version of uh, La Bamba. And here's this group that I really knew pretty well, and I really liked the music. And I heard La Bamba, I was just like, that's bizarre. Why would they do that? But you know, it was it was just. But then that, of course, there was enough time between the Richie Valens La Bamba and their La Bamba, and it was a right. part of a movie, I think, yeah. too, right? Yeah, it was movie, La Bamba, right? Yeah, right? And so it really took off, and then yeah. you guys were catapulted from. Being, you know, a regional well, touring, U.S. touring band. Here's the, the, right? the funny part of that story, though. It's like, so we, so we were touring all around California, and we become very close to Richie Valens' family. Who oh, lived in okay. Watsonville. Okay. So we were, so we were like, whenever we would go to Santa Cruz, which we played like literally like, all the time, like every right. month, we would stay with Richie Valens' mom and dad, his family, yeah, and they would feed us, and like he had this huge, still to this day, there's like 35 of them. Wow. And so one day they said, hey, you know, we, we, we sold the rights to Richie's story, but we, the deal was you guys have to do the music. We're like, cool, awesome. And we thought, you know, okay, well, it's going to be like, you know, there was no cable at that point. It was like, this is going to be like, you know, what the, who the fuck wants to yeah, do yeah, yeah. The guy wrote, you know, 17 songs in his whole life. Right, right. And he died, you know, he's died 17 years old. We thought, you know, this is going to be silly. And then... But it was Taylor Hackford who had just done uh, something else, which was kind of big. So I was like, oh, okay, well, this could be something. But the whole time we were doing it, literally the whole time we were doing it, it was kind of a joke. We thought, this is going nowhere. Who the fuck wants... There's no stars. Nobody had ever heard of anybody in the, right. in, the, in, the, in the movie. It was Luis Valdez was directing, who had never directed a movie before. Yeah. He, was the, he had this little theater group in uh, San Juan Batista. You know, it was like nobody had ever heard of. Uh -huh. They had not, like the Richie role was like he would he was begging us don't you know anybody who could fucking sing and act they had they, they shot the entire movie <laughs> and they were scratching it everywhere on earth trying to find someone who could sing and act and look like a 16 year old kid and that like the literally the, the whole movie was done except for all the scenes that Richie was in they couldn't find anybody and then 
I remember this phone call. I was like, oh, we found some kid in San Antonio. It was Lou Diamond Phillips. You know, it's a regional theater. I said, oh, awesome. You know, Hispanic? He goes, well, he's Filipino, but it's close enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's messed up. Because <laughs> it had to be a Hispanic kid. They couldn't right. sell it without a Hispanic. It's like, Filipino, all right, well, you know, they speak Spanish. It's okay. And I just remember thinking all along, because I was intimately, I, I was producing the soundtrack. Right. And, uh, I just remember thinking all along, like, oh, it's a really good movie. It's a shame nobody's ever going to see this fucking thing. Because it's like, who's going to see this movie? Right. Seriously. It's like nobody in it, you know, about obscure yeah, singer yeah. that, you know, most people knew, you right. know, if anything, like marginally. Yeah. And, you know, I remember, like, at one point, like, I'd seen, like, cuts and there was, like, long version, short version. We had, like, and there was so much, like, okay, uh, cut, come on, let's go. Okay, do it in a garage. Cut in the garage. Okay, do it in a theater. Do it in a theater. All right, do it in a living room. Living with that, and like they, 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 they was so like they couldn't. The, the story was complete mess until the very end. And I remember seeing like the final cut of the movie. I was like, wow, it's a really moving story. I could see why you know this could, you know, it's a great thing. But I just thought it's a real tragedy that no one's ever going to see this movie because it's so, it's so you know, what's the point? I mean, yeah, why yeah. would anybody know? And then so then so so we go to Europe, and. And we're in Europe for a long time, like a month and a half. And we're here, and I'm like, hey, this movie's kind of taken off. And the singles, we're like, yeah, right. And like, yeah, no, it's really, it's happening. It's, you know, you guys are on the charts. Like, what the charts? It's like, we we literally couldn't, like, we were we were so, and this was like pre-internet, pre-cell phones, course, pre-everything. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, we had to like, you know, get a trunk line to call home. Yeah. It was like, and we're hearing all this stuff like, you know, hey, it's really, this, it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a hit. It's going up the charts. And we're like, that's impossible. Like, we couldn't really... Yeah, yeah. We literally couldn't believe it. And we still, like... I was the only guy in the band that had seen the movie. None of the guys, other guys had actually even seen it or, like, you know, none of the stuff that was right, going on right. had had happened. So, uh, a brief aside. So, we're in Baden-Baden, Germany. Uh-huh. And they're, they're like, you guys have to see this movie. It's really happening. We're like, all right. So, we'd done the show and we're... It's like one o'clock in the morning and they booked a theater for us to see the movie. So, we go in and, like... None of the guys had heard, even heard the soundtrack, and we go in to see this movie, and it just sounded like the, the the dialogue was fine, but the music was completely fucked up. And I was just like, oh my god! I just thought, oh, that's it. They're gonna kill me. They're gonna fire me. I'm gonna die. They're just gonna kill me. And, and like it was, what happened was it was a, a European like this. The 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 the, the film width was oh, off. It was off. So it was just like you know, it just sounded like, yeah, like, yeah, 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 exactly. like the, the dialogue was fine, but the music was all right. fucked up. And I remember like on the phone to like Taylor Hackford at like three o'clock in the morning in Germany like crying my head like what the fuck did you do this <laughs> and they're like well no it sounds great it's already you know like people it's a hit movie like what the music's not right <laughs> you didn't know I'm on my dial like calling from my hotel room and you know, like oh my god crying my eyes very like, expensive you killed yeah. me I'm like no one's ever gonna hire me like, like, you know, like, long story short anyway I, I you know the next morning we figured out what had happened uh, but it was just like you know like those moments in your life where yeah, you just yeah, think yeah. like okay I've, just kill me now I'm done exactly, you know, it's like oh, yeah. it's all over I'm never gonna no one's ever gonna hire me again to do oh anything oh my god um, anyway so but the movie was a hit and so we come home and we're like top 10 or top 20 oh, yeah. and we still can't believe it it's still a complete anomalous yeah. you know we left in like May and we come back in July and it's like we're we're, yeah. we're a big deal yeah. Oh, all yeah. of a sudden, and like we had to like recalibrate everything. Right. And we still like the. I mean, our attitude even to the end, our attitude was like, 
that's ridiculous. <laughs> wow. We, even while it was happening, we're like, that's ridiculous. We didn't, and like we cared, but we didn't really care. I mean, wow. we didn't care certainly as much as any of the other, you know, the shit that we did. We just right. like, okay, let's do this movie, and it was, Damn. it was insane. Damn. Well, let's leave it at that because they All want right. us to get All out right, of this place. Out.